joy. What a lovely thing to feel. But then again, the word doom exists. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Su Cho. Today, I have the great honor of sitting down with Tarek Luthen, a Palestinian writer and community organizer based in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited for our conversation because the poem in this month's issue of poetry uh, titled I Want to Die has been speaking to me all week. And I, it's one of those rare poems that I just can't shake off my body. And it's an interesting one um, that's been following me around. So I'd actually love to start a conversation by listening to you read the first half of the poem. Sure. I want to die in the arms of everyone who's ever loved me, each appendage a tendril expanding into the ether of every moment I am leaving behind. Know this, I have dabbled in the enterprise of affection, cut my teeth on what it means to hold and be held. Behold, everything that has ever been labeled mine was stolen from me, but also now by me, the land from us, and now the land we were stolen to. I belong to nothing but my friends, those who have entrusted me with the gift of caring for them. For years, I trained myself not to feel for anything, to spare myself of having to feel for everything. No partner, no child, my parents will soon be gone too. Can you blame me? I watched men and women say things they don't mean and claim lives from bodies they won't ever eat. Some can't stomach culling the protein from a fly, but drop before the silhouette of a gun. Have you ever fallen for something empty as a word? For me, it was joy, the way it bounces when spoken. For years, I would whisper it hopelessly to the moon. I thought nothing of it. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm going to be that person and I'm going to say I was immediately drawn to the title, I Want to Die. And I can't help but say, you know, it's a bleeding title um, where the title leads directly into the poem. And I was wondering um, what made you decide to start the poem there with that bleeding title? I've been thinking a lot about uh, mortality, a lot about, I mean, also growing up with depression, anxiety, a lot of like mad illnesses or mad identifications. I've always been curious about what it means to say a thing to kind of give it space and then let it go and so I think for me being able to put that in the title to express like yeah there are moments where like I'm exhausted and burned out and just want this all to be over but doesn't necessarily mean I want to end I just want to find peace mm -hmm. and I really wanted to obfuscate that immediately by saying like yeah I, I do want to die one day but I would hope it comes peacefully I would hope it becomes something on my terms in a loving setting or after having departed a loving world. And so that's why I kind of bled that title into the next line, which is immediately like in the arms of everyone who's ever loved me. Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask you, you just said um, you had things that you considered quote unquote, like mad identifications. Could mm -hmm. you actually say a little more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think a lot of people um, use the word mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that I think in a lot of ways makes it seem as though we are identifying ourselves as ill, but I think MAD is more of a disability justice framework to identify some of the things that might be seen as invisible disabilities uh, for people to kind of identify with. And 
kind of reclaim the narrative of madness and what it means. So it is definitely reclamation of the word mad, but there is a whole like subset of disability justice advocates that identify as mad. And typically those identifications are for people who have some of these more um, difficult to see conditions. Mm, Yeah, thank you for talking about that a little more. You know, you're a community organizer based in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and I would love to know, um, you were just talking about your work with disability justice, like how you ended up there and how you got there. The disability justice movement in Detroit is actually very much led by elders. And Mm -hmm. so being the youngest person and also the most tech savvy person available, um, I was doing a lot of like the more digital age type of stuff that they weren't fully comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so I've been engaged. Oh, I'm sorry. My cat just meowed. Oh, um, that was I the cutest meow. I was like, what is that sound? <laughs> sorry, yeah. she messes up the recording. But so what happened is what I was going to say was, um, and I don't mean to that to sound prejudiced towards elders, but it just happened to be the case where I was able to do a lot of the more um, branding quote unquote work of like trying to get more members, get more people engaged. I mean, I think I've technically always been engaged in it just because it is an intersectional movement. Being Palestinian, I mean, most of my cousins or my uncles and people back home, they've dealt with some type of disability. I know so many people who have been maimed because of what they face as Palestinians um, living back in Palestine and Gaza specifically. And so to be in the disability justice movement more actively is something that just kind of felt natural to me because it was always something around me. I also used to volunteer in hospitals growing up. Like I've always been very adjacent to people overcoming disabilities and trying to challenge their lack of accessibility in many spaces. You mentioned family and I actually wanted to ask you like the big or small question, depending on how you feel of, you know, like how you got to where you are today being like in the States. Right. And I don't know, I always frame it that way because when I get asked that question, depending on my mood, I always say I have a short answer and a long (laughs) answer or like my funny answer and my serious answer. And so, I mean, we can start where you want to start. Yeah, so I guess um, the main story I tell is the story before I even existed of my father mm. having moved to America and, you know, technically Turtle Island. But just for folks to know, this is a Anishinaabeg land that I'm on. Yeah, my father moved to the States many, many years ago to get an education. He actually was in Arizona. And then my uncle came to Michigan and my grandfather was like, I'm not paying for both of you to be in separate states. Go <laughs> live with your brother. And so that's how my bro- my dad ended up basing himself in Michigan, went to school, got a job, and then worked in the United States for a couple of years before eventually going back to Palestine, where he entered into a traditional courtship process with my mother, who lived in Gaza. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure where to stop this story. But, um, <laughs> you can go as long as you want. Yeah, yeah. My parents <laughs> basically started off here a year before I was born together, uh, though my father was here with a little bit of experience in America before me. And then I came in and proceeded to be uh, a challenge for them because I was a really shy kid growing Mm. up. I I cried all the time. Like even when when I was in school, I, whenever I would get like bad grades, I would like hide it from them. Oh my God, me too. Wait, we have, yeah. I became an amazing forger (laughs) because whenever you get a bad grade or anything, you would have to take it to your parents. And I was like, nah, I'm not letting them down in this way. They gave up too much. Wow. I'm going to like, 
hide it from that's them. That's so, so deep. Like, that's a I, deep reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's me at 10 years old. Um, and then I finally got caught in like the fourth grade. Um, and then I found out that I needed glasses, which had helped me. Ex- and this, this was what, when going back to disability justice, right? Like for mm-hmm. a long time, I was struggling in school for a couple of years. Luckily, it didn't like really impact me when I got home because I could read my books. But like I couldn't see the projector. I couldn't see the screen for a while. Didn't know why I couldn't see it um, until like I had to actually go get it checked out. And that took many months for me. And I can only imagine how many people can't get things checked out because they don't have the resources or the healthcare or any of that. And so um, I saw like my life drastically change when I could start to see again with the aid of glasses, but also just being mindful of like having the ability to ask the question was such a hard thing for me to do as a, as a shy, anxious kid growing up. Yeah. I, know, I really appreciate you sharing those stories. And I I just realized that we both grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana um, after my family immigrated. So I pretty much did my first grade to 12th grade in Indiana. I didn't hide my bad grades for like really dutiful and good reasons like you. Uh, I just hid them because I was scared of the consequences. No, no, I was totally scared. No, like, no, no, I, I, I definitely was terrified as well. Like that's the auxiliary reason. But the first reason is like, no, I'm not going to bother them with this. The second one is, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for admitting that. Yeah, no, no, I'm not, I wasn't some like stoic 10 year old. Yeah. But I will say actually for my mom, another story for her, because I feel like I haven't amplified her enough. Yeah, yeah. They knew my mom by first name because I was actually the most forgetful student. And so she was always coming to school to drop something off that I forgot at home, whether it was like a lunch bag, my homework. It was really a, a power pairing for me and my mom. I was the crying kid and she was the <laughs> constantly visiting mother. So are you um, the youngest in the family? Or I'm you? the oldest, actually. I'm the guinea pig. You're the oldest. And then you were the crier. Oh, usually it's the other way around. I mean, eventually. Yeah. So there's this book called Bud Not Buddy where uh, he doesn't cry for the longest time. He's been through so much trauma and has lost so much. Um, and then one moment he just like cries so much and they give him like a name based on the tears. But for me, actually, it was the opposite. Like I cried all the time and then I just hit a point where like I never cried again. So wow, so, sounds a little sad and depressing, but like, yeah, it was. It's hard for me to like. Poetry has become the mode for me to express myself and to like process and to really find catharsis. And so when I say things like "I want to die," that is the poem trying to help me engage with these ideas, these thoughts, these uh, feelings that maybe I suppress, whether I know it or not. Yeah, thank you for sharing like your, you know, your feelings when you were a child and growing up and talking about how you process them now, because I think that's why I was so drawn to this poem is because I felt like I was getting a real time processing of all these feelings that are really hard to compress and distill into something you can understand easily. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, um, could you read the rest of the poem for us? Yeah. Have you ever fallen for something empty as a word? For me, it was joy the way it bounces when spoken. For years, I would whisper it hopelessly to the moon. I thought nothing of it until I found myself brave enough to chant before the sun. It was in this light that I came to find my peoples. I took shape among them. Joy, joy, joy. What a lovely thing to feel. But then again, the word doom exists. Sometimes it's almost too fun not to say apocalypse. Even cicada sounds lovely with the right inflection. I wonder if it's stronger 
to nestle into the chest of one's sadness or to lie about it. Once as a child, I spent a late summer night poking holes into the window mesh that shielded us against the bugs we had stolen away from. Each puncture, a compromise with those creatures seeking refuge. As I did it, I repeated the syllables, simonym, simonym, caught between cinnamon and synonym, letting each letter pass through until the end of the word. I imagine when this world ends, it will happen like a boy yearning to be released from a warm room, little by little, not all at once, unbothered by the thought of losing his place. processing my my heebie-jeebies the good ones <laughs> yeah i i just really love how when we get to the end of the poem we just build into like a buffet of words right and i just love listening to you say them like joy apocalypse cicada synonym uh cinnamon and obviously when i say it doesn't sound as nice right but i would just love great. to oh thank you <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, but I would just like love to know how these words like came to you for this poem. You know, for me, sounds when I write poems, they transport me back to my childhood because that's when I used Korean the most, right. and so I couldn't help but wonder, um, yeah, if these words took you back to a certain time, or if they just came to you because you you know like the way it sounds. A funny story is like I've always been a reader. I've always been somebody. Who was really um, good with words and really interested in expanding his vocabulary to the point where, like, I was in third grade once, and my teacher she was like, "Tark, like, how do you know all these words?" And I was like, "Pokemon." Like, <laughs> like, right, like they're using words like accuracy, effectiveness, <laughs> like yeah, you got to battle your Pokemon exactly. Yeah. And so, like, I was like learning these really big words while also reading a lot. I don't know. I just always felt like I was inhaling every word around me. I love talking about sounds and words, and now I have the Pokemon song stuck in my head. <laughs> Which one? Like the "Got to Catch 'Em All" one, or like the the friend? Yeah, one? yeah, the, the Pokemon "Gotta Catch 'Em All." Yeah, that one. You and me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Words like apocalypse are things I've been thinking about a lot lately. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I've been thinking a lot about mortality. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the concept that the poem ends with. Like, I don't think apocalypse is going to happen all at once. I think that it is little by little. I, I feel like apocalypse or apocalyptic things are happening every day that we don't always realize, or we do realize or choose to ignore. What are some of the ideas that you were thinking about? Like, were there writers you were thinking about, different theorists? I don't know how you think about the apocalypse. But I, I'm very curious. There's there's always so many writers and thinkers. But uh, I mean, for me, honestly, like this was definitely born out of like having grown up in a religious household. So I was thinking a lot about apocalypse from like the ways it's been told to us in religious context, but also movies. I was always watching movies where like it's like some cataclysmic <laughs> event is happening. But I don't think that's actually how the world ends. I feel like. It ends little by little. It ends where, you know, some people, the ozone disintegrates above them. Their trees are burned, things like that. And I remember even like post the 2016 election, people were like, we know we, we were okay 
under the bush years we'll be okay and i was like but who's the we like who made it out the people who Mm -hmm. are talking made it out but there are so many people who didn't survive and so when i think about that as a small apocalypse um i wanted to kind of give that time i wanted to give that space in the work um because it has lots of space in my mind um and and so going back to like the religious stuff there are things I don't always do. Like, I don't always pray as much as I should. I don't know if that's like something my parents will listen to this podcast. If they even listen to it, be like, you told people you don't do that. And I was like, eh, I, I should be honest. Um, but, you know, I do I do fast. I do mm-hmm. some stuff like that. And so like, but Islamically, traditionally, prayer is a mandatory act. And if you're not doing it, you, you'll be held accountable for it. And so I'm like, ah, I think a lot about apocalypse is like a deadline sometimes. Like, can I reach my best self before it's too late? Um, and so part of why I wanted to write this poem was it's a new mode of writing for me because I've always kind of written as a journalist in a lot of ways, reporting what has happened, but I would love to start writing. And I think I'm starting to write poems that are world building where I'm, ex- I'm trying to explore what the world could be before the deadline of apocalypse does come our way. If it does come our way, you know, the work of being an organizer or being a writer, or being even just an optimistic person is sometimes fraught with skepticism from others but i feel like you know we have nothing to lose except for ourselves and the people around us so why not start now yeah i i love that sentiment why not start now and i have to ask you know i think you said you consider yourself more faithful than religious and you're talking about the apocalypse and stories Do you remember like the first apocalyptic story you heard growing up? Yeah, I mean, well, it stuck with me because I was like going to like Sunday school for for Muslims, like growing up, learning about the Quran, learning about, you know, basically biblical, biblical end of the world type stuff. So like that was the first story I was ever met with, which is a story in which like there are a lot of signs actually for the end of the world. There are certain things that are prescribed or stated in certain hadiths and stories um in in muslim lore that say like you know if this happens the end of the world is near and there was also the saying by the prophet prophet muhammad or peace be upon him in arabic is what i just said where like he said from the end of my life to the apocalypse are like this and you can't see me but i am placing two fingers together in a crossed format like my my pointer my my index finger he's saying like they're this close But then my mom was like, yeah, but the world has existed for eons. So like (laughs) technically this close could mean anything. But in my head, I'm like, yo, global warming is happening. There may not be clean water or accessible water in like 20 years. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this is part of why I kind of push away from religion is like, I don't want my goodness or my capacity for goodness to be tethered to a reward. I want it to to be something that is inspired naturally. Mm. You know, how do, how does one inspire I guess, a mode of being without tethering to an institution like religion. Yeah. And it's really interesting because in the poem, right, these are, this is one of my favorite lines. Uh, You wrote, joy, 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 what a lovely thing to feel. But then again, the word doom exists. 
sometimes it's almost too fun not to say apocalypse. And I love how joy and apocalypse and doom are all together in a stanza. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what can we do to be good without thinking about the reward? And then I feel like we're getting all philosophical. And it's like, what is goodness? Is Does goodness even exist, right? But what I wanted to know was like, yeah, what does joy mean to you in your everyday life? Yeah. Because I feel like in the poem, it's something incredibly filled with paradoxical feeling. But also, if you repeat a word enough times, it becomes empty. Yeah. I would love to know, yeah, what does joy mean to you? I mean, I write after a lot of other people have already shared. I mean, specifically, a lot of my friends, um, many of them who are who are Black writers have have been implementing the word and the notions of joy in the face of so much violence and harm towards their bodies um, and towards our bodies in a lot of ways for people of color and people of marginalized backgrounds. And so joy for me was something I never really said. And going back to the Pokemon, like nurse joy was like the first <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> time I ever like saw the word joy. And I didn't even think about or appreciate joy for such a long time. And I think for a, for a long time, especially, you know, with, with the mad identifications, like being somebody who's anxious, dealing with ADHD, things like that. I was just like, can I even experience happiness? Like happiness was the word I was looking for. And mm. then I was like, well, maybe it's contentedness. And so for me, I lived a really long time. And I still think for most of my, the majority of my days, I spend in contentedness where I'm fine with things as they are but i'm not sure if y'all have ever seen this meme it's a drake meme actually and i, I hate, uh-huh. hate implement implicating drake um <laughs> he's such a um figure for me to uh use as an analysis a point of analysis but there's a meme where it's like he's at a party or something <laughs> and it's that whole idea of like you know you're having a good time and that, so it's one shot of him like being happy and the next shot is but then you remember something oh yeah i think i've like, seen yeah. this that's kind of how I exist. I'm like, oh, you're, you're vibing out. I don't go to parties, but I guess um, you're vibing out. What's what's the thing that I would do instead of going? I went to the plant dad gathering <laughs> and like, you know, I'm having a good time. But then you remember that the Amazon's forest is burning. And that, so like, that's kind of like how my existence oh, has man. been. Like, I'm like, oh, like you're enjoying yourself playing basketball pick up ball with your friends in Detroit or Dearborn or wherever, but then you're like, oh, but we're on stolen indigenous indigenous land. So I'm like, what is joy? Like, what is, I guess then you can start thinking of like big J joy and little J joy. Yeah. Um, but, oh yeah. Talk, say more about that. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? No, I just said that for the first time in my life. So I haven't thought about it enough. No, that's okay. <laughs> you can think about it while you talk. That's what these podcasts so, are for. So yeah, yeah. So I guess for me, like, you know, there's there's pleasure, there is contentedness, there is happiness, there is joy. Um, and I think joy is something that I don't know. It just I don't know how to explain it other than to say it's a sensation of being held. And that's why you know mm-hmm. the poem I said mm-hmm. I've held and been held and behold, because I think that there is something sustaining about joy. In the conversations I was having, it just felt like a more honest pursuit or arc towards a mode of happiness because it was able to acknowledge one can pursue a pleasure while also acknowledging a pain or acknowledging a harm or acknowledging the ways in which like not all of our consumptions are ethical and so sometimes not all of our joys or our you know happinesses are devoid of sadness and i think joy i think holds space for that or at least i 
would like to believe it does. Mm. Also, it's a fun word. I like the word joy. Yeah, so. joy. I kind of don't like the word joy. It's too short sometimes. Yeah, and I feel it's it's surprisingly harsh. I think it's the J and the Y. I don't like it, mm. but I want to feel it like you. Yeah, I think it's the Oi. <laughs> the Oi sounds so so nice, but then Doom is uh is such a is such an interesting word because it doesn't seem as harmful as it is. Like, no, doom. it's so soft. Yeah. If doom held me and held us, I'd be like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> so comforting. Yeah. This is like the bad boys of vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Doom wears a leather jacket and rides a motorcycle. Yeah, but he's really good at cuddling. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, where is this conversation? And so all this talk about feeling. I mean, you mentioned, you know, when you were a, a, a kid and growing up, you couldn't stop crying. And I mean, for me, when I was growing up, and till this day, like I hate crying and I just put it off as far as long as I can. No tears club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when did you stop? Do you remember? Was there a moment? <sighs> no, I think I just broke. No, I think I just broke. I was like, not nah, like there's no more tears left in me. I, I've done them all. They've all happened for mm. me. Because um, like I just because that's the thing. Like I was so I, I grew up being bullied, by the way. So like I was always, always somebody who was being picked on, um, being bullied. And that was actually like the the weird thing is I, I was I grew up in a in Dearborn, which is, you know, the, like I said, the largest Arab city in the country. It's little Arabia. And so in a lot of ways, like people who looked like me were the ones bullying me. Mm. And the other thing, you know, there's also lots of different like obfuscations there because like I was one of the only Palestinians growing up in my community um, for the longest time. I've I, I learned this since, but like for the longest time, I thought being a Sunni um, background Muslim was meant you were a minority, when in reality, actually, Sunni is the global majority. But in Dearborn, uh, the population is heavily Lebanese and Iraqi, and those people happen to be mostly Shia. And so growing up, I was always, I, I wasn't bullied for these reasons. Um, I want to be clear about that. But growing up, I never met other Palestinians, really. I never really hung out with any Palestinians in school or in my sports teams or any of that stuff. Um, I didn't really meet more Palestinians. I'd say until like I maybe got to college and started like participating with like organizations like Student for Justice in Palestine. But yeah, so I grew up in Dearborn, bullied a lot for a number of things, um, body image, my shyness. But then I think at a certain point, I just broke and, and maybe broke is a harsh word, but I just I, I guess I became numb. I became numb to a lot of things. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I got to college and you know, my organizing actually started with like sexual violence prevention. I had so many friends who were women who had had stories of abuse and assault. And so I was organizing as a literary activist, but I was also organizing as like a sexual violence prevention person. And so like one of the things that we did was we made people do trainings on like how to prevent sexual assault, how to help hold space for people post-assault. And then we tried to like advocate for people during like open mics to be like, hey, like, these are people that have done the training if you want to talk to anybody about anything that you've gone through. That was something born out of me not having had that ability or that invitation to discuss, right? So when I stopped being able to cry, when I stopped being able to express myself with these like physical manifestations in the form of tears and had it all be in writing, the writing still didn't go anywhere. Um, I had to still share that writing. I still had to put that work out in the world. And so I think the act of writing my poems and then publishing the poems or going to an open mic is to be able to have conversations like the one we're having today, where if I had not put the work out there, this conversation doesn't happen. Mm, yeah, I feel like just listening to you, I feel like 
for you, joy, joy is being able to chart out different paths for different people. And I feel like there's a lot of joy for you there. When was the last time you cried? I don't really cry except for when I'm when I'm really feeling my poem. Mm. Um, because like I said earlier, for me, poetry, the writing of it is the catharsis. It is the thing that I do to process and experience. Like, yes, there is, okay, yes, you feel miserable or yes, you feel so weighed down by everything. But like, what's beyond that? What is beyond that notion? And so for me, poetry is where I'm like, okay, you didn't cry. You didn't process this when it happened. We were processing it now in the safety of your own home or the safety of your own mind, I guess, because sometimes I'm actually not writing. I actually, most of the poems I write, I don't write on the page right away. I say them out loud and I just say what comes to me, kind of like I sing the poem to myself. And Mm. that act, like saying certain words, feeling them come off my tongue is how I've come to process a lot. And so I guess, I mean, the last time I cried was like, I was just reciting this poem a couple of times, just practicing it because I felt like for me, I don't actually stop at writing the poem. I like to internalize the poems I write because I know that if I wrote it out of a mode of catharsis, it means that there is something I'm trying to tell myself. Uh, and, And for me, I don't write because I want to excise an experience. I write because I want to hold an experience properly and then internalize that in my growth and my progression as a person. I want to ask this question, but I felt an impulse that I shouldn't, but that means I should. <laughs> and so, no, it's it's really so, I, when you say crying, like, I imagine, like, I'm really fascinated by the way you describe drafting a poem, right? You sing it to yourself. And I think that's really beautiful. You said that's, you know, that's the last time you cried when you were practicing the poem. And I'm just curious, like, what, what do you mean by crying? Like, what does that look like for you? Like, is it like a beautiful single tear? Or are you like sobbing? Or like, <laughs> what kind of crying? I feel like there's so many different kinds of crying. Um, yeah, and I just have to know what you mean. Yeah, so, okay. So the last time I I, I teared up then. I don't know if I cried. I teared oh, okay, up. Okay. Like, I, you know, the tears welled in my eyes. <laughs> uh, so, so that happens often when I'm writing. But also when I'm mm-hmm. also when I'm processing the things that go into the writing, right? So we talked about apocalypse, we talked about indigenous communities, we talked about disability justice, we talked about all these things. I mean, for me, being Palestinian, like I've always grew, grown up with like Al Jazeera playing in the background, um, watching as I'm seeing people who are maimed and having their lifeless or bloody bodies and corpses carried into ambulances and stretchers. And so like, I grew up with that. Like I was four or five years old watching that. And then growing up even more and like having access to like more watching like local news and and seeing like the stuff that we see on social media with police killing black folks. And so sometimes it's not even the poem itself that makes me cry. It is like processing how do we seize like this ever expanding sense of doom and try to channel it into something that is equitable and just for all peoples, not just some people. Um, and so that overwhelms me a lot. That makes me like tear up a little bit, but like, I think, and that, cause I don't want people to like take away from this podcast and be like, this dude cries at his own poems. Like, no, <laughs> I cry. I cry at the impulse behind the poem, right? I mm. cry at the thing that, inspired the poem i just i don't know i feel very deeply about things um and maybe that's and and that's one of the things i talked about i was trying to get at earlier i don't know how to teach people how to feel empathy i don't i don't that's one thing i've been like trying to grasp 
before getting back into classrooms. Um, I used to do a lot of workshops when I was younger, but pandemic happened. And then I was like, well, I don't want to just go back to like teaching words. Like I want to teach feeling, but I need to understand my feeling and my process first before I do that, because otherwise we'll have like a lot of rambling experiences like we are now in this podcast. (laughs) I'm trying to like triangulate what it is about like, what kind of because like I've also been thinking a lot about like if I ever want to have children mm-hmm. and so like what do I do to teach empathy in a way that isn't tied to like religion in a way that is tied to like feeling deeply because I look at the world and I'm like how can people do certain things to other people that is I think what comes out in the poetry and like the the tears like I'm processing things crying and then I'm like okay what do I do with this mm, and I, I love that question you just like pose to yourself what do I do with this Yeah, all this conversation about world building and words and community and what joy is, whether or not, you know, we feel it and manifest it through crying, right, or other things. It's giving me a lot to think about, especially since, as you said, when we started talking, right, the apocalypse is kind of happening all the time everywhere. It just depends on where you look at it. And you've taught me a lot about how we can see or you taught me a lot about how we could imagine the world that we want to be in. And so, yeah, thank you, Tariq. Thank you. Could we hear the poem one last time? Yeah. I want to die in the arms of everyone who's ever loved me, each appendage a tendril expanding into the ether of every moment I am leaving behind. Know this, I have dabbled in the enterprise of affection, cut my teeth, on what it means to hold and be held. Behold, everything that has ever been labeled mine was stolen from me, but also now by me, the land from us, and now the land we were stolen to. I belong to nothing but my friends, those who've entrusted me with the gift of caring for them. For years, I trained myself not to feel for anything, to spare myself of having to feel for everything, no partner, no child. My parents will soon be gone too. Can you blame me? I watched men and women say things they don't mean and claim lives from bodies they won't ever eat. Some can't stomach culling the protein from a fly, but drop before the silhouette of a gun. Have you ever fallen for something empty as a word? For me, it was joy, the way it bounces when spoken. For years, I would whisper it hopelessly to the moon. I thought nothing of it until I found myself brave enough to chant before the sun. It was in this light that I came to find my peoples. I took shape among them. Joy, joy, joy. What a lovely thing to feel. But then again, the word doom exists. Sometimes it's almost too fun not to say apocalypse. Even cicada sounds lovely with the right inflection. I wonder if it's stronger to nestle into the chest of one's sadness or to lie about it. Once as a child, I spent a late summer night poking holes into the window mesh that shielded us against the bugs we had stolen away from. Each puncture, a compromise with those creatures seeking refuge. As I did it, I repeated the syllables, simonym, simonym, caught between cinnamon and synonym, letting each letter pass through until the end of the word. I imagine when this world ends, it will happen like a boy yearning to be released from a warm room, little by little, not all at once, unbothered by the thought 
of losing his place. A big thanks to Tarek Luthen. Luthen is a Palestinian writer and community organizer based in Metro Detroit. He is the author of How the Water Holds Me, out from Bull City Press in 2020. You can read Tarek's poem, I Want to Die, in the November 2022 issue of Poetry, in print and online. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.